Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, how are you? Welcome to Midpoint. My guest today is Alexandra Shulman, CBE. Well, it's hard to get past the biggest job that she ever held. She was the longest serving editor in the history of Vogue magazine, which is the world's most famous and arguably influential fashion publication. Presiding over that for 25 years is a remarkable achievement in such a cutthroat competitive industry. For some, she wasn't fashion enough. For others, she should have taken a harder stance on skinny models. And then there were the allegations against the whole industry that it wasn't representative with black models and designers thin on the ground. Shulman had many fires to fight in her time. She also presided over a period of history in which there was so much technological and cultural change. She's published two books and she is the mother of Samuel. Solgar vitamins and minerals are supporting us again today. And now don't forget, even during the summer months, it's hard to get the vitamin D you need from the sun and your diet to feel at your very best. Though Solgar has a wide range of different strengths and formats to suit all seasons, skin tones and lifestyles. Right, back to Alexandra. I'm fascinated to learn about the transition from biggest editor on the planet to author and the lifestyle she has now. From the outside, it seems to me she has successfully navigated the midlife landscape against all the fashion odds. Let's find out. Alexandra, it's wonderful to to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on. I was really excited when you agreed to come on this because there's so many things to talk. This is about midlife, right? Yeah. And you took over as Vogue editor when you were 35, am I right? 34. 34. So... That when you were in your twenties, that seems quite old. When you're in your forties or fifties, that seems really young. Where were you mentally at that point? Did it seem like the right point in your life to be getting such a huge job? Well, firstly, thanks for for having me. It's um, great to talk. Uh, well, good question. The thing is that, as you say, the way you look at things. Um, Time has this weird way, doesn't it, of kind of compressing and expanding. So when I was 34 and I got the job, it didn't seem particularly young to get the job. Um, I was one of the younger contenders, but I wasn't in a completely different ballpark to other people that were getting it. Now, it seems, well, a few years ago, oddly enough, it, it would have seemed very young to get the job. But now I think there's been such a huge changing of the guard in so many areas. Um, 34 seems like quite reasonable point to get it. Where were you in your head in, 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 in terms of your life goals and, you know, where you, you hadn't had your son yet, obviously? No, had, no, I was all over the place. I hadn't had my son. Um, I had a kind of an on-off boyfriend. Um who did eventually, I did marry and who was the father of my son, but it was by no means a kind of slam dunk at the time. (laughs) Um, And in fact, although this is going to sound kind of weird, it was one of the things that made me concerned about whether to accept the job because I knew that that job sort of came with it a kind of an identity and um, a lifestyle that I wasn't sure was going to be easy for me to find somebody 
um, that I was going to be able to kind of spend my life with since at that point I didn't know whether it was going to be Paul. Um, And, you know, I was wary about that. I was wary about whether sort of the Vogue world was going to be one where I'd be able to, to meet, you know, somebody else. Because you looked around, presumably, at your peers and, and as you say, the lifestyle and what you were heading into, you knew you were heading into this high octane environment that was going to demand everything of you. You can't just turn off from being the editor of Vogue, can you? You don't just turn your phone off at five o'clock and, and go make supper. Actually, <laughs> that's exactly what I did. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, not quite five o'clock, but... Um... I'm somebody who sort of survives by compartmentalizing, I think. And um, I was very clear to myself that I would be the editor of Vogue when I had to be the editor of Vogue, but that it was important for me to be kind of Alex Shulman at other points. And so when I came home, I mean, obviously I would, you know, deal with something if it had to be. But you have to remember, it was 1992, so it was a different time. Things weren't so 24 hours. You know, we weren't getting emails, texts, WhatsApps all day and night. Then. Heaven. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was good. And you know what? We did everything just as well. <laughs> That's so interesting because I hadn't put that into context, actually. Now you say that, you were able to switch off. And all those technological changes were happening in that 25 years that you were yeah. editor. So you were having to kind of manage that as you went along, I suppose. But because you started off with those very clear lines of kind of demarcation of where work was and where home life was, maybe it was easier to kind of keep those. Whereas young people now don't seem to have that ability, do they? or they don't seem to be able to mm. turn off. I think, I think that's very true. And I hadn't thought of it until just now with you saying it, but I suppose the fact that I had started that way made it easier for me to continue that way than somebody who, um, you know, got to a position where they were working hard, where they were just being contacted all the time. I have to say, I'm noticing now, though, literally in the last, and possibly it's through the pandemic, I don't know, but I'm noticing more and more people are kind of saying, sorry, I didn't get back to you, but I've taken some time out. You know, it, it, it would only be overnight or something. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like I didn't expect them to get back to me. But um, I think people are beginning to review their kind of their use, their, their connectivity. Their practices. So you, you, 25 years is a long time in any job, but in such a cutthroat industry where you must have seen and felt people breathing down your neck, wanting to, to do the job that you had. When you look back now at how you had to adapt and change, because Adapting is really interesting to me because kind of in midlife, we, we all have to, to some extent, do that. Were you aware at the time of how you were having to evolve with the, with the advent of things like social media, which was affecting what you did in the magazine as much as your life, wasn't it? Because people were projecting themselves in a way they wanted to on social media, no longer reliant on the editorial, if you like, of a magazine. Well, again, that came pretty late in my time there. You know, I would say that was only... I remember I left in 2017 and I remember, I think it was the beginning of 2016, having a conversation with my team and saying, I think we've really got to look at the covers because 
Now, so many people are putting their own sort of images out on Instagram and their lifestyle or sort of, it's like Instagram is showing you into their personal lives. I think maybe our covers need to adapt to be more in that spirit rather than being such um, kind of unreal kind of constructs. Um, and that was really the first time I really started thinking about it. So that was, what, 2016? That was five years ago. But that was still nearly my last year there. So that that whole thing wasn't really such a big deal. I think more of a big deal for me was um, publishing a, a, a Vogue.co.uk, so having a digital... Mm. life as well and if you're used to working with a kind of timeline that's kind of three months in ahead how are you combining also a team who are working you know in real time as it were so to connect that that was something that became something that we had to think much more about and I had to kind of get my head around did the digital, the advent of digital, whether it was the, the digital version of Vogue or what was going on, you know, across the internet, has that influenced and changed, do you think, the seasons in fashion? Because obviously you mentioned like the th- three-month lead and, and we know we'd have the winter collections, the summer collections, and they don't seem to be, everything seems to merge now. You know what I mean? Everything seems to kind of be a little bit more um, melded and um, interwoven because of social media. Does it seem... That had an influence or? Mm, It's a good question. Um, But again, I would say probably 2015, I may have got that year wrong, but around there, there was all this talk about see now, buy now, and that the fashion calendar was going to change. And there were designers like um, Christopher Bailey at Burberry, for instance, was one of the first ones who said, "Our, our show is going to be of clothes that you can buy right now so that we're no longer going to be producing kind of um, such kind of strong seasons six Mm. months before and everything. And um, I remember Tommy Hilfiger did it and various people did it. And basically, for whatever reason, that doesn't seem to have continued. Um, And so I think that the idea you might have thought that it was going to change more than it actually has changed. Um, I think because of the pandemic, again, there's this kind of lack of delineation between the seasons that's going on and everything's a bit more kind of trans-seasonal and obviously e-commerce encourages that because if you go on to a a website, you can be in, you know, Honolulu or you can be in Copenhagen and still looking at the same merchandise. Mm. So people don't, uh, they they want to be able to have access to, to clothes for every season. But I think, interestingly, the fashion industry has not changed as much as you might have thought um, that it was going to. You survived... 25 years um, in, in this magazine through through all kinds of uh, periods of social change. You know, I was thinking back to kind of like the ladettes of the 90s yes. through to kind of, you know, the the um, 
the, the whole skinny model debate, you know, which is makes me kind of laugh in some ways because, you know, I, I look back to Vogue's and magazines of the 70s and 60s and they weren't exactly chunky, were no, they? No, twiggy, they were, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and all those things that, and then personally as well, you were, you know, you were either not fashiony enough for some people or, you know, how did you deal with that level of scrutiny, you know, that, that, that people wanted to talk about you um, as well as the magazine? Or do, is that something that you were prepared for? Yes, I, I was prepared for it. It's quite interesting. You know, you have to be aware. You have to be aware of the deal, I think. You have to be aware of what kind of contract you are making. So when I went to Vogue, I knew that I, that meant that I I would be scrutinised, um, that I would become more of a kind of public figure. Um and I was kind of okay about that. But I think if I'd been sort of thinner skinned than I am, you know, it, it can be quite hurtful. And I I got fed up with the way I was portrayed as somebody who sort of wasn't like you'd expect an editor of Vogue to be because after 25 years and people were still writing that, it was like, well, hold on a moment. What do you expect? I mean, I've been editor of Vogue for 25 years. So this is what the editor looks like and I've said it before but I'll say it again I think it's really interesting that my successor who is a a man does not get the same kind of scrutiny of his appearance in any way as I did. Who influenced you as an editor because you you know you found yourself in this job in the the mid-30s this iconic job and you you obviously had an idea of how you wanted to shape and create the magazine and make it you know different that you don't take over a job like that do you just to carry on doing what what's been there so what was the most important thing to you was it was it getting those big stories was it the way you kind of you know with the direction you were taking the magazine in or how you were perceived within the industry what was what was at the forefront of your mind at the start well you know you get a you you get a job like that because you've done a kind of proposal on normally um and so what did you pitch? Uh, yeah, so I had, um, my feeling about Vogue was, again, it's like back in the dark ages, but it was 1992 and there were a lot of new magazines coming out at that time and things like the newspapers were starting fashion, colour su- fashion supplements, not just colour supplements, mm. but so fashion was becoming a much bigger thing and Vogue had basically owned it pretty well until about 1990. You know, there just wasn't that much competition, but suddenly there was. And the reason I got the job was because I wasn't a fashion insider and I wanted to find a way to uh, not democratise because actually I always felt that Vogue had to have this kind of aspirational feel that you had to feel like you were looking in on a world that was different to your mm-hmm. own, but I wanted it to be relatable. So I was very keen to have more writing about fashion, not writing about uh, trends, but writing about how people got dressed, sort of mm-hmm. real people, what they wore, um, why they chose to look the way they did. And oddly enough, I wrote a book a couple of years ago, or it's just about to come out again in paperback, clothes and other things that matter. And I realised that that book is really all about what I wanted to do when I went to Vogue, which was to sort of try and get an element of the kind of emotional connection 
that we have with clothes to put that into the mix as well as the sort of the glamour and the fashion. So I was very clear that that's what I wanted to do. Um, and that when was said, probably, yeah. When you said, sorry, when you said there um, that you weren't a fashion insider, you know, that wasn't, and that wasn't the space you came from. That it feels like over that 25 years that for some people, that was the reason why they could never quite get to grips with, you know, who you were because you weren't that fashion insider. But in some ways that also lends itself to why you lasted a quarter of a century, you know. So so it's um, it's interesting that people c- couldn't quite work out why you didn't want to be kind of like dressed like, you know, a clothes horse every day or be constantly kind of, you know, groomed, go to the hairdressers every morning or all that stuff, which is so synonymous, isn't it, with that, with that industry. And yet the other part of it is that that's the reason why you sold so many copies probably because... Uh... Yeah, it's very... You understood women maybe a bit more. Very perceptive of you that, I think, that um, it's probably one of the reasons that maybe some people couldn't, didn't sort of, as it were, quite get me. Um, Wasn't anything malevolent or anything, but Mm. um, maybe couldn't quite work out where I was sort of coming from. And almost certainly is why I sold as many copies as I did, because I was happy with taking Vogue outside the kind of insiderness of it. Um, And sort of addressing, always had this idea of, you know, of the woman that I was sort of targeting was somebody who, you know, she worked, she was professional, but she probably wasn't, you know, she wasn't like a CEO. She was, you know, middle management and Vogue would be her treat um, on a Friday evening, uh, going home, probably maybe commuting mm-hmm. or something. Um, you know, she wasn't, as it were, a 28-year-old um multi-millionaire who spent her days in Bond Street. Um, Because I knew knew that we had that anyway. Those people Mm. were going to buy Vogue. It was to try and how do you find a new audience? And by the way, I came in and I was told, we want you to grow the circulation. You know, that was my remit. Um, So if I hadn't done it, I wouldn't have been there for 25 years. (laughs) So, so in in terms of um, how important Vogue is in in the landscape of cultural landscape, not just you know not just sitting on magazine shelves, where do you think it is now? You mentioned digital. You know, for, for me growing up, it was what you described. It was that escapism. If I picked up a copy of Vogue at sixteen, seventeen, it was like diving into. You know, I'm from Leeds. No, you know, I, I, it was to me. It was like opening something up that was an, a faraway land, but it was it was it was just beautiful and perfect, and and that was fine. I wasn't trying to kind of be those people, but it was an escapism. So, where does it sit now? Do you think, in terms of its importance and influence, and um, how um, seriously we should take it? I, I'm sure that folks, uh, you know, is um, has the same influence. And it's just, I think every editor that comes to Vogue has different things that they want to be influential about or that they want to use their voice um, and their power, I suppose, to to talk about. And, you know, Edward, my successor, is, you know, basically diversity is his, is his message. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, he's gone for that 100%. And so he's, you know, he's changed my magazine quite a lot in terms of uh, a lot of the content. 
Uh, but I don't think it's any less influential uh, at all. It's just got a different message. Are you enjoying it, his version? Yeah, well, I've just, see, um, just seen the new issue um, as we speak. It's got Malala on the cover. I haven't seen the issue mm-hmm. yet, but I think that's a really interesting interesting choice to have. It is, actually. I was, looking, I was looking on the digital Vogue before um, I came to speak to see what kind of things there, you know, articles are in there. And it was interesting, the Malala um, behind the scenes, which I thought, wow, you kind of like Malala behind the scenes article, which is interesting. And then another article, which was entitled uh, something along the lines of why we shouldn't congratulate people for losing weight, which was also, <laughs> I thought there is the age old thing, isn't it? The weight, the weight issue never goes away, uh, whether it's Vogue being attacked for being too skinny or now coming up with a kind of new narrative. Um, but maybe quite different takes on on things that would have been there 10 or 15 well, years Well, ago. oddly enough, I mean, that the, the second one about the weight, that was very much sort of what I was very much campaigning about. You know, I was, I was very, very, um, I think it was probably the two things that I would say I, if I had a kind of message that I actually consciously worked was the idea that, you know, people should be more comfortable with their weight and we never... Uh, published articles about diets or how to lose weight or and we're always trying to I mean we didn't have large models but we did have quite a range of shapes of people featured in the magazine which but that leads me on to probably the bigger thing which was this idea of wanting Wanting women, you know, of all kind of professions and uh, occupations and lifestyles to to be seen in the magazine so that for younger women, they weren't only having role models of TV stars and movie stars and models, but who who looked great in fashion. I mean, I think I think at the sort of through the sort of 2000s and into the early sort of 210s i think you know any image you saw of a of a young woman looking sort of really glamorous was so sort of artificial in a way and um i was thinking that if you were a young woman and you were thinking about being i don't know um a biodiversity expert or something how easy would you feel that you could do that and also really sort of go for you know great lash extensions and (laughs) nails and you know wear really fashionable clothes so I tried to show women sort of in those roles enjoying fashion and talking you can do both yeah that you can do both but I wrote a piece the other day uh for the Mail on Sunday, where I do a column. And I'd been watching the Brits. And I was quite struck by how, on one hand, you have all the young women nowadays, you know, uh, who are kind of very influential, have great voices, who are very much about, you know, love yourself, be good to yourself, um, all of that. Be true to your natural self and everything. Don't be ashamed. And yet when they come on screen, they are so completely, um, again, artificial. I mean, there isn't an inch of their bodies that hasn't been painted, um, adorned, um, you know, very kind of uh, 
probably quite a lot of cosmetic work on face and everything. So I think this is quite a conflicting thing that's going on at the moment, that you've got people saying, you know, young women saying, it's fine to be yourself, you know, and the body diversity and you can be plus size and this, that and the other. But actually, at the same time, I think people have gone back about 15 years into being sort of much more kind of like, um, you know, I don't know, Spice Girl kind of looks. Mm. You know, I thought about my kind of heroines, you know, my role models, as it were. And, you know, it just happened that they were all these kind of, you know, ladies of the canyon type with long hair, you know, Kaftan, you know, Joni Mitchell, Carol King, Carly Carly Simon. Simon, (laughs) Yeah, you know, all of that. And... So although they were stunningly beautiful and brilliantly talented, they weren't they weren't artificially no. you know, they, they didn't they not just enhanced on social media, Instagram filters, but literally have, you know, squads of glam teams around <laughs> prepping them for every single appearance that they did. There are going to be a lot of women kind of over the age of forty listening to this. Let's mm. talk about clothes and what you've learnt through being 25 years editor of Vogue about dressing in our age, because it does make a difference what your body's like, doesn't it? Obviously, in terms of what you, you know, what you can carry off. But, but actually showing parts of your body over a certain age, is that something that's an absolute taboo, a no-no for you, that you, you shouldn't wear too low-cut to tops and too short skirts after a certain age? I think I'm very conflicted. I was on, on the beach last week, and there was, uh, I'd noticed that, you know, the bikinis now that people are really like thongs. There's a big kind of thong thing going on. So everyone's bottoms are hanging out. And um, I was thinking, oh, my God, I just, you know, the, I, I mean, even at 17, I couldn't have done that. My bottom is not nearly nice enough. Um, but uh, there was a woman, you know, probably in her 70s, possibly even 80s, large woman, you know, wearing um, wearing one of these kind of thongs. And I was looking at her and I was thinking, you know, my first thought was, ooh, don't know if that's a good look. And then I immediately went into self-correct because I thought, actually, it's fantastic that she feels so happy with confident <laughs> and happy with herself and able to, you know, potter around. You know, she wasn't trying to be glamorous or anything. She was just, you know literally had come down for her daily swim, um, you know, and felt completely happy walking around with her body, which was, you know, really quite substantial. Um, And so I was trying to work out, you know, what I do feel about that. And I think it's a kind of context is all somehow, you know, if you're, I think there's something about personally, I feel with people sort of trying to be sort of sexy in some kind of way that is very kind of flesh exposing at a certain point. I don't know. I I guess I don't, I don't love that look, but am I right to say it's wrong? No, I'm not right to say it's wrong. I can't, you know, that's my opinion. What What do you think? What do you think? Um, I think actually, as as I get, I'm 48. I think. Oh, I, you're a baby. Well, I, <laughs> I think I I feel 
if we're if we're using the word sexy, I definitely I'm not about flesh. You know, I think I, I'll feel better in a well cut dress or a really gorgeous pencil skirt with a shirt or something. Mm. Or you know, if I wanted to kind of be that was the look I was trying to get. But then I've never really been a fleshy dresser, if that makes sense. You know, even when I was younger, I wasn't somebody because I'm not booby, so I didn't kind of ever go for you know anything that was quite. Um, chest exposing but I did like to get I used to wear quite short skirts in my 20s um and so that definitely I've noticed in the last six or seven years that's definitely changed and it's not because I feel like my legs have got worse I just I just it just feels a bit weird and I've got a 15 year old daughter as well and so I think anyone who has a daughter uh of a teenage daughter has a different a particular attitude to the way that they're dressing at the moment because well, you would know why. I don't really know why not having had one. I feel quite lucky, actually, that my son appears to not to notice. You know, I think I could come down not wearing anything and I don't think he'd <laughs> notice. Um, but um, I think, you know, you've got this kind of this voice, this little person on your shoulders all the time. I, um, you know, I'm 64 now. No, 63. And, um, you know, I used to wear... Uh, you know, quite low cut things. And I had a figure that suited kind of like, yeah. I used to wear lots of kind hourglass of 50, 50s hourglassy mm-hmm. kind of clothes now. And, um, you know, I probably don't wear that so much now. I definitely don't, I don't, you know, this this bit is, you know, I think is not a brilliant your, bit. Your decolletage. Um, is My decolletage you... is not what it once was. <laughs> it's not terrible either, but it's not what it once was. But, you don't I think it's really interesting the question of how do you how do you feel about the way you want people to see you? And um, you know, forty-eight does think, now seem quite young to me. And I think that's the you know, that's the thing, isn't it? Knowing why you're doing something or why you're wearing something yeah. and what you what you're yeah. trying to project. And that part of it, which going back to your book, I find fascinating, like that, that our relationship with our clothes and our looks and as we get older you know that midlife thing of I just recently did a big shop for work and you know I, there's definitely a slight change in the tone of what I'm buying you know in terms of I put a few things on and thought nah, too young <laughs> and I you know I'm the stylist I was working is like no no but you kind of know in your you know in your heart don't you, you know in your gut that something I don't know a waist that's just a bit too high yeah or, you know it's those little details but I think the other thing is that what is quite important is that it's those little things that also make a difference between you looking rather frumpy. So, you know, it is to do with a heel height that you're wearing yeah. or the length or maybe where the waist falls or the sleeves. I've, I mean, I've really noticed that, that, that paying attention to those kind of little micro trends is all the difference actually between looking kind of like you've got stuck in a time warp mm. and seeming, you know, quite contemporary. I think when you get over 40, maybe it's not taking all the trend, isn't it? It's taking a bit of the trend and and then you kind of, you know, it works. And, and also what I love about fashion now, and I love it for my daughter's generation, that they can wear trainers with pretty much any sexy dress they want to and it's fine. But also that we can wear trainers. And speaking of trainers, am I right in thinking, because I love talking to people about what they're doing to keep themselves healthy and well, you know, their well-being mentally. You're a runner these days. Is that right? Or yes. Um, no, no, I do. I do run. I've been, 
I've been running for years. I'm, I'm a runner who essentially hasn't really kind of improved because... Join um, the club. <laughs> oh, good. That's good to know. But I have this complete theory, which is that it's just good for me to do. And I'm somebody that if I make myself do something uh, too much, then I just won't do it. So uh, the answer is I am a runner. I try and run every other day. I never run every day. And I have just, oddly, downloaded a 10K app that I'm thinking I might try and build up to... It's good to have a goal, I think. This summer, yeah. Yeah. But I can't really, just time-wise and everything, you know, I'm not really... I mean, 40 minutes is about... not, Not that I can't run more, but actually it's just becomes very boring to me. That's, I had this conversation, I don't want to name drop, but with Paula Radcliffe. I said, right. Paula, I said, I can't. I said, As you do. I said, Paula, I can't get beyond like 5K, 6K as yeah. my run, you know. And I said, and I, I know I can because my lungs and my heart could keep going. And yeah. she said, right, you've got to go. I want you to go run for an hour. She said, even if you do it on a treadmill and just whatever, however slow you get, just go for the hour. I should put a really good soundtrack on and do yeah. it. And, and we were in Brazil for the, for the Olympics a few years ago. So oh, wow. I did this every day and I realised I could run for an hour, but it was the boredom. Yeah. Was, I get to a point where I could no longer, I could put the towel over the time I was on a treadmill because I couldn't run in the area I was staying in in Rio. It was a bit too dodgy. And I'd put the towel over the kind of the time. So I wasn't aware of it. And I, I, I always knew how long a song was. And I think, oh, yeah. I've been going 36 minutes now. Oh, I've been going 42 minutes now. I couldn't, I don't know, I wasn't zen enough or yogi enough no. to, take, to take my head into some other space which me too is what really good runners do <laughs> I know I can't, I, I can't get into that zone at all but the other day uh, in Lisbon again actually my brother told me about this um, because it was up and down and I knew I wasn't going to run I thought I'm going to try and swim because I've got to find a way of mitigating the the rosé and Aperol spritz damage I know I'm going to do. So um, my brother told me about these MP3 player headphones that you can wear to swim. And you just, um, it's it's like an old-fashioned kind of Walkman device, but it's headphones that go around the back of your head and you can go under. So because for the first time in my life, because running's boring, but swimming is really boring, right? In a pool. And, um, but for the first time, you know, because I could listen to my music and... How long do you swim for? 50 minutes. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, I've never, ever done that in my life before. But it it reminded me, because you were saying you knew how long a track was, so I was like, I'd be counting the tracks, you know. I was like, (laughs) okay, they're probably about three and a half minutes, so ten, that, you know. I think you've got to find what you enjoy and and do it more, actually, I've learnt in midlife. You've got to do more exercise than you think you need. Uh, we learnt that on the first series from Greg White, who's the guy right. who trained people like Davina uh, McCall and David Williams to do their big challenges. So as our bodies are getting older, we actually just need to keep the intensity up, which is, I think, um, it's good to know. And if you can, it's, it's good to do. Uh, it, at Vogue, I imagine that you get every... Well, I know people have worked at magazines and they talk about the beauty cupboard, you know, and you go and you get all these amazing products sent to you, you get and fashion, you get the clothes. What were the best things that ever came across your desk in your time, whether it was tips or whether it was words of advice from designers or products that you... Oh, gosh. Only, what were the products that you took home and thought, yes, I would actually buy this if I hadn't been given it? Ooh, that's a really tricky one because... I think at the time, I mean, as it it was a joke in the office that 
for beauty, for instance, you know, I could have had any beauty treatment free in the country, any product. If I'd asked the PR, they would have sent it to me. And I just had no interest in it. And now I've left, I've become obsessed with products, absolutely obsessed, <laughs> spend a fortune on kind of rejuvenating no. face oils. Yeah, it's really mad. Um, so... What about um, facials? Did you ever... Oh, uh, no. I Again, boredom. Massage, facial, can't bear. The only facial that I have is uh, a woman called Vishali Patel, does a fantastic, fantastic lymphatic drainage. Facial, mm. and I do that about twice a twice a year, and that sort of really helps because I do get sort of water retention. It's only around twice here. a year. You see, there was me thinking the Vogue editor would be going once a week for a, for a facial. Well, I mean, like many that. people were, many mm. people did, um, and I don't know why. I think I was always felt I was working to. It's like the hairdresser. So now I go to the hairdresser. Well, not right now because of the pandemic. But before that, I was going to the hairdresser and kind of really getting into going to the hairdresser, you know, looking at the magazine, ordering a coffee, all of this kind of thing. When I was working, I was just like, get me out of here really quickly. You know, I had no no pleasure. It sounds like you've adapted to your new life very well. Yeah, I have. I, I love it. I mean, I think I love it because I spent so long doing doing the rest. And I think it would be harder if I was kind of 10 years younger, probably, because... um, You'd be searching still for something, do you think? Yeah, probably. I I think, yeah, I think I wouldn't feel... Well, it's not like I'm not... I am working and I'm working quite hard and, you know, I'm exploring quite a lot of different things but I don't, I think if I, if I was 50 and I'd left Vogue, you know, I'd probably think, oh, I've, you know, I've got another really big job in me that mm-hmm. I'd like to do and everything. And, and I don't, I don't want that. And, you know, I've so enjoyed the ability to just be at home in the daytime. I mean, today is a really sunny day. And for me to be able to go and hang up some sheets in the garden, to me, that is luxury. You know, I could never do that for 25 years. You know, I never, you know, I was out of the house first thing and back and I don't know. So I really appreciate the things that I can do now. And that's nice. Well, that sounds like a perfect way to end our conversation because I think, you know, midlife is about adapting in lots of ways, but you you kind of nailed it there, I think, Alexandra, <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> with how you've come through a, such a, a challenging and uh, brilliant career and, and still having one, but in a very kind of different paced style. I think the, the analogy or the metaphor is the way you approach the hairdressers. <laughs> Just <laughs> sit back and read the magazines like the rest of us do. Um, thank you so much for sharing uh, oh. those insights and anecdotes and uh, wisdoms and uh, have a brilliant sunny day. Go oh. on those sheets. Thanks, Gabby. Take okay. Care. All right. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye. Bye-bye. My expert today is Davinia Taylor. She was the Hollyoaks actress who had the party lifestyle, the glamorous friends and the almost constant paparazzi presence in her life until her relationship with alcohol came to an end. Her life certainly got healthier in one way, but stopping that addiction didn't leave her feeling as physically well off as she might have hoped. She gained a lot of weight, up to 60 pounds, and wasn't feeling the best version of her that she could be. It was only when she really addressed her diet she found true mental well-being. 
I wanted to invite her on to talk about biohacking, which is something she's specialising in, and gut health in relation to mental well-being. Davinia, how are you? Well, I'm currently up in St Andrews for half term, so I am multitasking like a lunatic and uh, <laughs> sort of trying to hack my way around um, the food that's here and the kids that are here and the COVID restrictions and the terrible weather. So, yeah, trying to stay on top of my game in the face it of adversity. It doesn't sound like the most restful holiday I've ever heard, I have to say. Well, I've got three out of my four boys here and I can just say that there's too much testosterone in our bedroom. <laughs> you must be used to that, though. Yeah, I mean, I I do have to operate at um, a high level of patience, shall we say. But, um, I mean, I generally lose it about five times a morning. And, uh, okay, you know. <laughs> And it's about average, I'm pretty sure. Look, you have written a book and you're very keen to say kind of in all of the blurb around it, this is not a diet book. And what's what I've loved about what I've read so far about your book is the candidness, the honesty. And you're very honest about your giving up a, a very kind of hedonistic party lifestyle. You gave up alcohol. But when you gave up alcohol, that didn't produce the results that you were kind of looking for. It didn't give you what you thought was going to be this kind of optimal, healthy life, did it? Well, no, because what I wasn't told was that what everything that you consume within your life, like food and environmental toxins, for example, not to mention emotional toxins, I was beginning to notice a direct correlation with a sort of depressive, low energy, lethargic, brain foggy type mood with certain ingredients that I was consuming on a daily basis. And no one sort of teaches you that when you put the alcohol down that the, you know, that you, you have to consider other things that you might be sensitive to as well. And you know what? I think as a population, we've become so used to that sort of middle aged bloat and tiredness and sort of like wading through gel that we call life that it becomes the norm and we all speak the same rhetoric. Oh, I'm knackered. Oh, I can't be bothered doing this. Or I forgot this. Or, you know, I'm stressed or I don't get a decent sleep. And it really doesn't have to be that way once you pass, say, 35 into your, into your old age. It doesn't have to be that way. I think we've be, all become victims of the ultra-processed food profiteering from, from us, really. So you were eating, obviously, what you thought was quite a healthy diet. You would have said, um, I'm a healthy eater. What were the foods? You said there was stuff on a daily basis. What was it that you felt when you started to eliminate it was causing the problems? Okay, so there's things like whole grain cereal, whole grain toast or low fat spread. All of these ingredients, we are sort of given the go ahead when we're on a, a diet. And by the way, I don't believe in calorie counting. I think calories do have an impact on your weight. But if you're feeding yourself with calories that have nutritional value, you start eliminating cravings. I hate cravings. I mean, I'm an alcoholic. I know what cravings feel like, you know, and I it's the worst feeling in the world wanting something you can't have. And that goes for sugar. That goes for alcohol that goes for class a drugs it's all the same thing if you want something to a point where your body takes over and you, you reach for something you shouldn't have without any control it's an awful feeling and then the after effects is oh, i failed again i have no willpower but this wasn't just sugar was it because a lot of alcoholics do replace the the evening drinks with with sugar don't they and that's quite kind of quite a, a well, well actually when path. i was in rehab um they told me to always have 
the equivalent of like penny sweets on you. So if you did have an alcohol craving, you'd replace that craving with sugar to try and drive up your dopamine, that happy hormone that the alcohol was Mm. giving you. And also you forget that alcohol is laden with sugar anyway. So not only do you have an addiction to the alcohol, you also have an addiction to sugar anyway. Every alcoholic does. And, Mm. you know, you just don't know that. So basically you kind of give up the addictions in the order in which they're going to kill you. And obesity kills you a lot slower than alcoholism, particularly my level of alcoholism, uh, which was quite acute, to be honest. But that was like five years of sobriety without any mm. sort of alcohol. But my mood was still on its on the floor, really. As somebody who had been living an alcoholic's life, you were expecting this epiphany where you'd wake up and be full of energy and just feel great all the time. And that wasn't happening to you. Well, this is it. And often a doctor will tell you to go on antidepressants. So I did that as well. And that didn't help because not only did I sort of not feel depressed, but I didn't feel joy either, you know, because it just levels your mood. It didn't make me Mm. happy. And to be honest, I like being happy. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it it, it helps everyone around me if I'm happy. I'm more creative. I'm more energetic. I'm more, you know, I'm just better to be around. I'm a better mom, better wife, better friend. Being happy, I think, is a prerequisite to be a, to being a successful human being and a productive human being. So just shoving me on the antidepressants actually didn't work. And all these inflammatory ingredients like hidden sugars and vegetable oils, seed oils, so sunflower oil, rapeseed oil, that have no business being in our food chain. You know, they were actually invented way, way back in the 50s for farm machinery lubrication. And so unlike something like butter, which we've been eating for millions of years, um, we have these vegetable oils and everything to preserve uh, the shelf life and to make them give you that sort of mouthfeel taste. It's a selling point that the the, the big food industries use. So it's a certain fact that it, it makes things blend easy. It makes things taste creamy. And we've become so used to it. We expect it in our food, but it has no business being there. And I think, looking at my genetics as well, because I've done a lot of investigation into my genetics, I don't have a very good detox system. And I think I was burdening my liver with all Mm. these strange ingredients and it was stopping me from functioning at the level I'm at now. It was making me tired. Even if I had nine hours sleep, I was still exhausted and I had Mm. no zest for life, no creativity. And I could just about get to the kitchen to have yet another coffee. And as you say, a lot of people start to get these kinds of feelings maybe when they've, maybe with their headspace gets a bit, they get a bit more time to, to think about why they're tired in midlife because you're, you're kind of racing through your 20s and 30s, doing what you do. And then you start to almost, um, a lot of people accept, don't they? There's that, that kind of middle age spread. It's something that, you know, but it doesn't have to be that way because we're not actually meant to suddenly just put lots of weight on. Just no, because, and I, of course, I, I there's agree. the whole hormonal thing going on as well. Yeah, and obviously there's a huge conversation to be had about the perimenopause starting in your 30s and you don't have to wait until your 50s, you know, <laughs> when, when literally you're at the busiest time in your life when you're, when you've got kids and you've got family and you've got a career in your 30s, yet you're trying to balance your hormones as well so that's another conversation but I think to help yourself now you need to consider everything that you're absorbing particularly if you've got a predisposition in your genetic code that you're not that good at it you know I'm missing a gene that makes um, a a detox a master antioxidant called glutathione Mm -hmm. and I'm missing that so you know it kind of makes me feel like 
you can't treat me the same as someone who's got that. I'm, my husband has it. He he detoxes really well. He never gets the kids colds. I do. So I take glutathione now and I have IVs and I know what I'm putting into my body and why. I'm not just willy-nilly putting supplements into mm-hmm. me. You know, I know I've done this investigation and that's biohacking. You're hacking into your own biology. Mm-hmm. And through what's taken me like... 10 years of pratting around Harley Street and all sorts of stuff and being all over the world and reading tens of thousands of papers, I've, I've sort of like curated the best way you can do it with minimal mm-hmm. cost. Because it costs to go and get your genetics tested, doesn't it? And people listen to this. Yeah, yeah of course. I mean, obviously that. the price has come down phenomenally. Like 20 years ago, it was like about a million pounds to do it. Now you can do it for a few hundred pounds because we've decoded the genome, you know, and Britain are really good at it, by the way. So we're sort of market leaders in that aspect. But knowing exactly um, what I need to hack around is a blueprint. And I think it should be made, you know, on the NHS because preventative medicine is so much easier than trying to cure chronic disease, which is you know, that's what we do. We, we don't prevent. We just, mm-hmm. you know, we try and cure and it's never a cure. It's always a Band-Aid over a gaping hole, you know. So I don't really want to get ill and I certainly don't want to be tired. I hate being tired and I hate craving. And that's what I wrote the book about, just to mitigate those things and so- to just stop stop this moderation, everything in moderation. I think it's it's the, it's the biggest it's the biggest waste of time comment I've ever read. And every doctor says it to you. And mm. What do you mean? How can I moderate something that's highly addictive that makes me crave more and more? Because mm. it's been designed by a biochemist in some lab in Utah that, you know, mm. I cannot put my Pringles down. I cannot put my Mars bar down. I can't do that because, you know, th- this is how these foods were designed. That's why I sort of navigate around the cravings before they happen. So I never get one. So it- so the, the, the process, or if you, if you kind of uh, wind back a little bit, it wasn't just to lose weight, although you did want to lose weight because you were overweight at, at that point, weren't you? But, but actually the main aim was to get your kind of mood in check, get your happiness back, get your energy back, which of course, as anybody who's lost a lot of weight will also tell you, you know, losing weight helps your energy levels anyway, doesn't it? It tends to, because you tends to come with a more mindful eating process. Well, it wasn't just that. I mean, I was feeding my brain, And my body followed, if you know what I mean. You're right. Yeah, basically, Mm -hmm. I wanted to improve my mood. And Mm -hmm. I just didn't know how. All these different diets, these low-fat diets, these sort of cutting this out, these food groups out. Were you following lots of different plans? Gabby, I've done every diet there is. You're kidding me. I've signed up to everything. I've been vegan. I've been on Atkins. I've done keto. I've done all sorts of things. But the the one thing that I've noticed is this vegetable oil, this seed oil. This seems to be the problem. And it's in really expensive diet foods as well. All these Mm -hmm. granolas and everything you pay a fortune Mm -hmm. for, you turn that label around, you'll see sunflower oil. And that Mm. seems to trigger even more so than sugar, which I know has been demonized. And it's taken like, I think the NHS, 20 years of like, tests to actually turn around and say, yeah, we've got a problem with sugar. And I'll hack around that by taking things like Corella and um, activated charcoal. And it, I Mm -hmm. mean, just taking a few pills helps me get rid of that junk that shouldn't be in my body. Yeah, Mm. it offsets it. And they're the sort of tips that I find useful when you're trying Mm. to lose weight because we are not saints and I don't want anyone to give up everything because 
it's unsustainable, you know? It's completely mm. irrational, particularly with all the marketing around us all the time. You, you need ways out. And that's what I've tried to put in the book. This is how I've hacked around it. This is what worked for me. I'm not a saint. I'm from Wigan. I eat pies. Bloody hell, you know, that's how I was raised. I have a takeaway on a Saturday night, but this is what I do to mitigate it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, give yourself a pat on the back because you've done OK for five days. So they are the they are the kind of central tenets, if you like, of the book, would you say that, that you know, the oils um, as opposed to anything else? What are the other learnings that you have fed through your experience into the book? Well, I mean, I did a list of um, secret sugars. There's like 50 odd names for sugar, which I think um, you should be aware of. So if something tastes nice and you want another one, turn the label around, identify what it is and understand you're going to trigger yourself. And that and what I su- suggest also is just think of the CEO of that company sat on a super yacht eating lobster thermidor while you're, you know, buying yet another packet of Pringles or another, you know, uh, Weetabix or something like that. It's in there. It's all in there, and hey, it's there for Pringles. Profit. Pringles even told us in their advertising, didn't exactly. they? Exactly. Probably to stop us <laughs> they, doing they them. They warned us. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But always read the label. See what else is in there. If there's a burger or a sausage, half the time it's got wheat and gluten in, and that's going to like inflame your gut. And when your gut's mm-hmm. inflamed, you're not going to make enough serotonin, which is your happy hormone that goes up to your brain. It's the gut-brain axis. And it's mm-hmm. paramount. If your gut isn't producing enough serotonin, you will not be happy. And what's the point of that, you know? Well, the uh, I, and why I, I really wanted to get you on because um, I feel like it's a, such an important area. Gut health is just, for me, it's like one of those, you know, areas that is going to really, over the next 10, 20 years, the relationship between the gut, inflammation, depression, you know, it's it's enormous. And it, and it just feels like it's, it's at the moment the health industry is almost just scratching the surface. You know, it does. I just don't feel it's a conversation that's out there enough. And this particularly, your book particularly, makes it really accessible because I think a lot of people find it, oh, is that another thing I've got to worry about? No, actually, it's probably the only thing you've got to worry about. <laughs> For sure. I mean, Hippocrates said that all disease, um, you know, begins in the gut. And I think he's got a point, to be honest. And that was like, God knows how many thousand years ago. But I work with a guy called Professor Tim Spector from King's College, who is phenomenal. And he is on the cutting edge of everything gut healthy. And it's way beyond my comprehension. But all I know is, if I want to be happy, I've got to look after my gut. And everything I put in my mouth will end up down there. So do I want to enjoy this Mr. Kipling's cake for three seconds? Or do I want to be... operating on a lower happiness level for the next few hours. And it's almost like what I did with alcohol. And I just fast forward 20 minutes. How am I going to feel after I've consumed that? And once you start fast forwarding and thinking, is it worth it? Forget about a lifetime on the hips and all that. This is your mood Mm. here. Who cares what you look like physically? If your mood's low, it doesn't matter if you've got a body like Elle McPherson. If you feel crap, what is the point? You know, there is no benefit to it, to anyone. But if you feed the brain appropriately, the body follows automatically. Mm. The body wants to thrive. It doesn't want to be, you know, inflamed, sore. Mm-hmm. You know, I had sore knees. I hadn't even ran. I had sore knees. My elbows were sore. My fingers were sore. I was so inflamed. I was like a mm. walking bruise. And I felt vulnerable. I mean, mm. I felt like, you know, if someone was to try and attack me, I would just think, oh, all right then. You know, I mean, there was no running in me. There was no No. chase. There was nothing. 
There was no, in your fight and flight, flight had gone and fight was almost gone. <laughs> oh, that was gone. Yeah, I just sit down and just say, okay, take what you want. In fact, here's my bag. Do you want the keys to the house and the car? So it was like, it was like that. I didn't feel at all like I was in a place of self-worthy either. You know, my mood was so, I was like, what is the point? You know, who cares? Do you feel now, if you'd eaten that way in your teens and 20s, that you would have been able to live with a bit of alcohol? Or was alcohol always going to be a problem? No, I think you're right there. I think I definitely trained my brain to want more dopamine. So this is why I worry about our children of today possibly going down the path of, you know, everything has sugar in everything that kids have has sugar in it's marketed at them even the savory stuff has sugar in anything you buy that is prepared has sugar and this veg oil in and it it, it improves shelf life and of course it makes things addictive even like tomato sauce has got tons of sugar in ketchup everything and i think their sweet point is now so much higher than it was in the Mm. 70s that we will see an alcoholic epidemic because it's the next hit. It's the next dopamine hit. It's the next feel good that you get access yeah. to. And, you know, I don't particularly want to wish that on anybody. It's really horrible because being drunk is nasty. It's very obvious. And, you know, people look down on it like, you know, it, it's something yeah. you choose to do, which, of course, you don't. And particularly, there's a lot of shame around it because people seem to think, oh, you must have had some awful trauma that we don't want to talk about. I didn't have any trauma at all. I used to sit in rooms in AA and think, I don't know how to, you know, relate to this because there's these horror stories here, but I had a really nice upbringing. You know, I didn't want for Mm. anything. And, you know, I was out in the countryside and I had really um, successful parents and, you know, they worked hard. We had a lot of fun, nice holidays. So, you know, where's this come from? To the point where I even got hypnotized to see if I had some regressive trauma. There's nothing there. But guess Mm. what? I had a lot of sugar when I was little. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot, you know, I I have a predisposition to getting my dopamine fix from substances, you know. And I think I burned through all my sort of happy hormones in my gut that I actually felt pretty low. And Mm -hmm. nobody told me that when I was like 17, 18, that, you know, you have to eat a certain way to make yourself feel better. Because the science wasn't there, the technology wasn't there. So I think we were at a turning point that we need to sort of acknowledge that, you know, families need protecting. Otherwise, we're going to have some awful, I don't know, addictive generation coming through. And it's no fun being addicted because it really, really is a pain in the arse trying to get sober. Giving up anything, I always say like, you know, I've never smoked and I've got friends who've given up and how, seeing how hard it is. I always say to my, my kids, don't start because from what I've seen, it's really hard to stop. You know, But the and trouble that- is everyone started. Everyone has started with sweet treats. So mm. what's next? And depending on your genetic makeup, you will gravitate to the next hit. You know, you will, whether that's gambling, whether that's shopping, whether that's online, whether that's Mm. sex, you know, or whether it is alcohol or class A's, you know. Mm. I mean, it's weird. I mean, I'm an alcoholic and I used to smoke when I drank. But trust me, I've never had a nicotine addiction. Mm. And that's meant to be the most addictive substance on the planet. And it just doesn't, it, it never got me. You know, beer didn't get me. It didn't make me feel happy. It was white wine. And that right. was it. You know, you could Massive take anything sugar. away from me, but don't take a what my white wine because I will kick off. And it's a bit like that with sugar with me. Well, and carbohydrates, you know, and it goes, mm-hmm. it goes that way. But now, incredibly, I seem to have repopulated my gut in such a way that I can have 
a couple of something and put it down. Like I could have a few Pringles and I don't kick off the craving because so many of us have leaky gut and it's Mm -hmm. making us hungover, feel permanently hungover. You know, and some doctors won't acknowledge that it's out there because it's not in the syllabus that they learn. Well, have bone broth, have colostrum, avoid these foods for two weeks, see what happens. And, you know, it's like, okay, I don't have to go through 15 years of elimination diets. You know, I could do a poo test if I want to. I'm doing one next week, actually, just to see what my gut's up to because I feel good. I want to know what my good Mm. gut looks like microbiome style you know I want to see what microbes Mm -hmm. are in there that are working for me and the technology's there and it's at your fingertips and once you've got it and you start to understand it I mean it's fascinating because it impacts you and your kids because they are half Mm. you you know and 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 it's it's something that I think should be more mainstream really and should and the price of course will come down as the technology expands which will be great and also as as you said as as the mainstream uh, medical establishment and the government inevitably works out that it's much better to be healthy from the start than it is to pay for all the repairs later on now i normally ask experts for three takeaways you've given me so many takeaways there but if if uh, if you could just kind of succinctly put them into three what would they be your your three either three top tips the three things that people should do um what would they be Davinia? okay so i would definitely Definitely start turning labels around. Forget about what's on the front. And if it says free from, be on high alert because free from fat means higher sugar. Free from gluten normally means higher sugar. Learn what vegetable oils are in your foods and try and take them out. That's super easy. You just turn the label around. If it's got rapeseed in and the ingredients lift or if it's got sunflower oil and put it back. There are loads more companies out there using avocado oil and olive oil in their ingredients. Your body understands that. It can metabolize it, use it and get it out. You know, it doesn't know what to do with the other two. Also, I would always have activated charcoal knocking around just in case you do slip up. That will mop it up. It's really absorbent. And you can get it in Holland and Barrett next to nothing. And basically, you just take two of those before and after a meal or whatever, a takeaway probably. But don't take it with medication because it will bind onto that as well. If you're on medication, have Corella. And also another thing that I would recommend is cold showers. Um, so I know, I'm not very good with cold. So I generally have a hot, hot bath beforehand to the point where you can feel the, your, your pulse in your head, you know, and then just do 20 minutes, sat in a hot bath, get out, have a cold shower and just do it for 15 to 20 seconds and watch your hormones rebalance. You go into fight or flight mode and then the parasympathetic nervous system calms you down when you realize you're not dying and you'll have some really nice, happy hormonal feelings. And that's the easiest way to sort of start balancing your hormones and listening to your body. And they're all generally pretty cheap and easy to do. Amazing, amazing. I hope the book is an enormous success because um, I think it, it is essential reading for lots and lots of people who haven't really explored this area and can't understand why they... I, I know these people. I've got friends who, you know, they... they they diet or they, they're exercising and they can't work out why it is. And it's very hard, isn't it, to to always be the person that's the party pooper saying, have you thought about this? <laughs> and this book actually isn't a party pooping book. I no, it's think. how to do so. the party bit without sort of feeling hungover. I'm just really happy that people are interested and we can take the power from the diet companies, your Weight Watchers and your Slimming World and put the power back into our us as consumers and start outing these companies who are making billions on us and our misfortune. You know, it's not fair. 
Well done. Thank you so much. And go enjoy the rest of your, your half-term break um, with your high-energy testosterone-filled boys. And <laughs> Wish me luck, more life. Take care. Well, I feel like we've had two for the price of one on Midpoint today. A huge thanks to Davinia Taylor. You heard her just there with incredible passion for her subjects. And I'm totally and utterly addicted to reading anything about the gut and the brain. It's really my favourite health topic. So she was right on message for me. I think it is going to be a huge growth area in health over the next decade or so. And thank you to Alex Shulman. Having read her magazine for so long and seen her career from the outside, it was so fascinating to get a little insight into what it was like to be at the helm of that magazine. And from listening to her today, I wonder if her ability to detach herself from the craziness of the fashion world, not be totally immersed, is what gave her longevity in the end. Who knows? But she seems certainly to have got some great balance in her life right now. Thank you so much to Solgar for sponsoring. Solgar are seeing a real uplift in their beauty range as people are starting to venture out again. And their best-selling collagen hyaluronic acid with Biocell Collagen is one of my personal favourites. Biocell technology producing remarkable bioavailability as well as rapid absorption into the body. Thank you to Lauren Armstrong Carter at Rethink Audio for producing, to my wonderfully talented brother-in-law Elvis Lederer for composing the excellent music and to you for listening. Until next time, go well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 